nuclear secrets, and midterm fights. New revelations that documents seized from former President Trump's home contained another country's nuclear secrets. What we get is these constant leaks, and the only reason to leak to the media is to influence the narrative, which tells you this is being politicized. And Trump's allies jumped to his defense. Meanwhile, the Justice Department fights a judge's decision to appoint a third party to review the files. And... It's clear which way the new MAGA Republicans are. They're extreme. Democracy is really at stake. President Biden takes his message to voters and blasts Trump and election deniers. People are falling further and further behind. They feel pain every time they go to the gas station or the grocery store. While Republicans focus on the economy. Plus, remembering the queen and her royal visits with America's presidents. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. This week, alarming new reporting from the Washington Post revealed the FBI recovered top secret information about a foreign nation's nuclear capabilities during a search of former President Trump's home. According to the paper, some documents received retrieved were so secret, only the president and a small number of senior level officials had access to them. And on Wednesday, former President Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr weighed in on the legal jeopardy Trump faces. There is no scenario legally under which the president gets to keep the government documents, whether it's classified or unclassified. If it deals with government stuff and it's government, it goes back to the yeah, government. I, I... Meanwhile, this week, a federal judge appointed by Trump granted his request to have a third party known as a special master to review the documents seized from his home. But the DOJ has filed an appeal to overturn that ruling. The DOJ is also requesting that the judge pause her related order temporarily blocking the government from asset accessing the documents as part of this ongoing investigation. Joining me to discuss this and more, Nia Malika Henderson, senior political analyst for CNN. And here in studio, Devlin Barrett, national security and law enforcement reporter for The Washington Post, the man who gave us all that reporting, and Amy Walters, publisher and editor-in-chief of The Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. And I love having to say your name twice, because that's great. <laughs> so thank you all for being here. Devlin, you, of course, had the striking reporting this week of this nuclear documents retrieved of foreign nationals, capabilities. What more can you tell us about what was retrieved in the scope of all of this? So obviously, there was a lot of classified information, and there were a lot of levels, but part of our reporting showed that some of this stuff was incredibly sensitive. And so one of the documents, one of the sets of material that recovered involved a foreign government's military defenses, up to not just their conventional defenses, but their nuclear capabilities as well. And obviously that's a big concern. That's not the kind of thing that anyone wants roaming around out there in the wild. The other piece of the reporting this week is that some of this stuff was so tightly held that only a small number of cabinet-level officials or near-cabinet-level officials were authorized to even tell anyone about it, meaning that this stuff was so closely held, dozens of people in the government, some of it, uh, that, you know, it's among the most closely guarded secrets in the American government. And that's part of why there was so much in concern with the intelligence community. And it's a window into what Bill Barr said, which is that this wasn't just sort of forgetting your library card and taking it with you. This is really, really big, incredibly important documents. Um, there's also, of course, this fight over the special master. Um, 
Tell us a little bit about how this might impact the DOJ's investigation, how it might even stall it, given the fact that the judge is saying that they might they, that they shouldn't have access to the documents at this time. Right. So the judge has basically told the government, you cannot use the classified information you took from Mar-a-Lago. And what we've just seen is that the Justice Department has filed a response saying, Your Honor, you have to undo that restriction because we can't do the work we need to do to protect national security with that restriction in place. Their argument is, one, there could be more stuff out there that we haven't found. And if we can't look at the stuff we have found, we might not be able to trace it back to other things that might be out there. That's important because they haven't made that suggestion before. The other part of it is, part of what's going on in the government is there's a damage assessment happening right now. And the government said in this newest filing, we cannot properly do the damage assessment without the FBI being able to look at what they found in the search. And so that issue is now back before the judge. And, and we don't know yet how the judge is going to take this and how Trump's lawyers are going to take this. And sticking with you, Devlin, and thinking about the other unknowns of this, because there are so many questions to ask a DOJ reporter, such as yourself. Um, Bill Barr, former Attorney General Bill Barr, this week he said he believes former President Trump shouldn't be charged, but he also said in the same breath that the DOJ, he believes, is getting closer and closer to having enough evidence to be able to indict him. What do you know about this big decision facing Attorney General Merrick Garland um, and what it, how it squares with what Bill Barr is saying here? So a couple things. One, it's still pretty early in the investigation. I, I know that public attention tends to move faster than the Justice Department investigators move. You don't say. But yeah, <laughs> but, but we're still fairly early. The other issue here is keep in mind that the original priority of this search was to just go get the material. It is cons the intelligence community looks at something like this being out there in a hotel or a club or, or a private residence and thinks that's dangerous. We have to get that back. So they have they have sort of met that first problem by just taking the material they can find back, and then they have to work through. Okay, are there crimes here? Were, was there willful violation of the law here? And and that legal jeopardy is definitely not over for anyone, but it could take months to sort out. Could make months to sort out as as it's being sorted out, Nia. Um, you have, of course, a former Attorney General Bill Barr, who has been very critical um, and saying that, that former President Trump shouldn't, frankly, have taken these documents. But then you, of course, also have Republicans like Lindsey Graham, who are full-throatedly giving their defenses of former President Trump. What do you make of the politics of all of this? Well, listen, it's complicated for Republicans. Remember, when this first happened, you had an array of Republicans essentially saying this was good for Donald Trump. Maybe it would speed up his announcement uh, of another run for the presidency. And it had brought people uh, back into the fold of Trump world uh, who may have turned against Trump. That whole idea, I think, is a little out the window now. You certainly have Republicans who are true Trumpists, Lindsey Graham, somebody like Marco Rubio, who, of course, is on the ballot uh, this go round in November. So he needs to hold Donald Trump close and not incur his wrath. So that's why you see him so so very much out there uh, pointing a finger at the DOJ saying this was politicized. But you don't necessarily hear a lot of Republicans at this point 
offering a full-throated defense of Donald Trump. At some point, I, I think some, someone in the House said, well, listen, well, maybe he needed these documents because he's writing his memoirs, right? I, I mean, which is a laughable uh, excuse that makes no sense based on what we know about Donald Trump and, and just you're not supposed to have classified uh, documents. But that kind of, I think, line from kind of run-of-the-mill uh, Republicans who are, are in Congress on the House and the Senate side, that's not really happening as much anymore. Mitch McConnell uh, was asked about this uh, a few days ago, and he essentially said, listen, he's following along and, and learning about this as everyone else is. But he did note that he's, you know, it's sort of wall-to-wall -wall coverage of this. Hint, hint, this is likely not so great for Republicans, for the Republican brand, to have Donald Trump back in the news. But it is a real tightrope, I think, particularly for Republicans who are on the ballot, who want to hold that Trump base uh, close, but also want to be seen as law and order Republicans who aren't going after the FBI. Uh, and Amy, talking about walking that tightrope, I want to come to you and get your idea, your, your thoughts on the fact that the GOP doesn't seem to be on the same page here as Nia just laid out. They're all sort of trying to figure out what to say about this at this point. Yeah, and especially if you're a swing state candidate or a swing, whether a swing state or a swing congressional district candidate, you would like Donald Trump to not be in the news. That would be the best for you, right? You, many of these Republicans, their game plan for this election had been set months ago, and it was pretty simple. We're going to talk about Joe Biden, who's unpopular in our state or district. We're going to talk about the rising cost of living. We're going to talk about how Democrats are responsible for that. It was going to be a pretty easy one, two, three. And it was working like that until, well, I think two things. It wasn't just the Mar-a-Lago situation, but the fact that the January 6th hearings um, were, I, I think they broke through more than many people had expected. It's not that people changed their opinions about Donald Trump. I think if you support Donald Trump, you still see this as a political situation. I, I still don't think um, voters were necessarily tuning in and paying attention to every little detail, but it was out there kind of floating out in the ether, right? And it was a reminder to many independent voters, voters who might have shown up in 2018 or 2020, not to vote necessarily for Democrats, but to vote against Donald Trump, to vote for, we want to return to normal, we want the end of the chaos, that this chaos is still there. And it was in front of them day in and day out. It was just sort of out there constantly. Yeah. That's not where Republicans want the last two months of this election to be focused on. Well, and thinking about sort of where we're going next, Evelyn, talk a bit about sort of where this investigation is going next. We have some deadlines coming up. We also have in the DOJ filing, some people are reading it saying there might be more classified documents out there. What's your reporting telling you? So I think, I think a couple things. One, we are still in sort of this holding pattern, waiting to see how much is the judge's special master mindset going to slow down the criminal investigation. Uh, we could know more about that in a matter of hours or days or weeks. It's, it's not really clear yet. So that will be one big sticking point in this process, potentially. The, the other issue is, you know, as the, the government and the investigators go through this material, they're going to have to make decisions on whether they think there is criminal exposure here. And so that could be, obviously, that could have political consequences, that could have legal consequences. And it's, it's still very high stakes for everyone involved uh, because there's still a lot we don't know. Obviously, we're reporting every day, but there's still a lot we don't know. And there are, you know, 
serious potential consequences for a lot of the players in this as it goes forward. And to think about the consequences, there's something that a uh, question that the team here at Washington Week, we were all sort of thinking about, and that is, we're a month into this investigation, but some folks, especially as we learn more with your reporting about these possible nuclear documents, why did it take so long for the government to go in there? Why did it take so long for us to reach this point, given the fact that we're learning more and more about these documents? So I think you have to understand the timeline, because this is sort of a slow-building crisis through that starts with the National Archives of all places. Like, one of the amazing things about sort of the Trump era is that the crises sometimes come in the, from the most unexpected places, like the National Archives asking for a weather map and, and other things that were just part of the presidential record and they wanted essentially for history. And Trump and, and his advisors kind of fighting them or, or at least slow walking those requests. But, but what really happens is in January, Trump's team turns over some stuff. And that those boxes turn out to be full of classified papers. And that raises the level of alarm considerably. Yeah. But then what happens in the spring is you've got demands for, okay, they get a subpoena. Just give us all the classified information back. And that's bad enough. But in, in the face of that subpoena, the government believes that Trump and his lawyers and advisors did not, in fact, give it all back. They were withholding it. And they seem to be intentionally withholding it, if you believe some of the things in these court filings. And so it's really in June that this becomes sort of a full-fledged, oh, geez, what, what is this? And so I, I understand the sort of frustration of why did this take so long, but it's really sort of a two-month yeah. difficulty. Like, serious, it becomes very serious very quickly in June. Well, that's, thank you for breaking that down. I think for our team and for people at home that are watching this, that will definitely help them understand why we're now living through this investigation. So thank you so much, Devlin, for joining us and for sharing your reporting uh, the other thing that, of course, Amy was already talking about and that we have to talk about, this past weekend, this past Labor Day weekend, like many before, it marked the traditional kickoff of the midterms general campaign season. Both President Biden and former President Trump are campaigning in battleground states, including in Ohio and in Pennsylvania, states we'll be talking about a lot, I'm sure, on Thursday at a, at a Democratic National Committee meeting in Maryland. President Biden made his pitch for electing more Democrats. Imagine if we just elected two more Democrats in the Senate and keep the House of Representatives. Imagine. We'll codify Roe v. Wade. We'll ban assault weapons. We'll protect Social Security and Medicare. We'll protect voting rights. We'll pass election reform. Meanwhile, Republicans have been accusing President Biden of wasting money and hurting the economy. Here's Senate Minority Whip John Thune taking aim at the president's student loan forgiveness program. The Democrats demonstrated once again they don't care about fiscal responsibility, they don't care about debt or deficit reduction. Right now they care about one thing, and that is buying votes going into a November election. Joining the conversation now is NBC News correspondent Dasha Burns. She's been running all across the country. Um, so let's discuss the races to watch ahead of November's election. So Dasha, like I said, you've been crisscrossing the country, going to battleground states, including Pennsylvania. Talk a bit about what your reporting has shown about what this, what's at stake in this midterm election, what voters are talking about, and how Pennsylvania in particular is sort of a microcosm of what's going on out there. 
Yeah, Yamish, you know, I've been spending a whole lot of time in Pennsylvania. So have you. And we're about to spend a lot more time there. I think just about all of our lives are going to become more absorbed with this state and the races that we see there, not just because it's probably the Democrats' best shot at picking up a Senate seat, something President Biden was pointing to in, in his soundbite you played there, but also because it really is pretty representative of politics in the age of Trump. Look, you've got Dr. Oz, a celebrity candidate who nobody really ever thought would be running in a race like this. Uh, people still, voters that I talk to to this day, are a little bit confused to, to see a celebrity doctor, a reality TV star running for Senate, but he is, and he's received Trump's endorsement. On the other side, you have his opponent, Democratic candidate John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, who himself is a bit of a larger-than-life character, right? This six foot eight guy with lots of tattoos who's painted himself very much as an outsider. And I'll tell you, Yamish, the language that I hear voters use when they talk about Fetterman is pretty similar to the language I heard voters use when they talked about Trump in 2016 and in 2020, saying, you know, this guy's not a typical politician. He tells it like it is. So you've got these two battling it out. Oz has recently really been focusing on Fetterman attacking him as soft on crime, not willing to debate. Meanwhile, Fetterman, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, I'm sure, has started to put abortion as uh, an issue that's front and center. On Sunday, he's going to hold an abortion rights rally uh, in Pennsylvania. So you've got yeah, sort there's of a the, lot to talk about. There are a lot of sort of absolutely fighting it out. And Amy, when you think about this, um, I want to put up this this poll from NBC, from sorry, from NPR, PBS, NewsHour, and Maris, and it shows that it's in a generic battle ballot rather, 48% of registered voters are saying they prefer a Democratic candidate and 44% are saying they prefer a Republican. Of course, we have you on here. We're so excited to get you on the program because you can break down what's at stake here. What are the big trends that we're seeing when you think about that poll? So we have seen some movement in the so-called generic ballot, right, where you ask voters that question. Who would you vote for in November, Democrats or Republicans? Now, Republicans had been up a couple of points earlier in the year. So it's been, you know, we'll call it a three, four, five point shift in Democrats' favor. The most fascinating thing, though, Yamish, and it's what has even people who've been doing politics for years and years and years, folks I talk to say this is the strangest election I've ever been through because the president is still really unpopular even though his approval rating's not as bad as it was, say, at the end of July when it was at 38%, at 42%, that's not a great place to be when you're the party in power. But underneath it, we're seeing, like you just put that number up, Democrats at 48%, even though the president somewhere like is at 41%. So Democrats somehow outperforming the president, that's not um, something that you typically see. And the real question, again, another head scratcher is, um, what role is abortion going to play in this? I want to ask about abortion, but I want to ask you yeah. a quick follow-up, which is, New Hampshire. Why is that interesting to you? What stands out there? So this is sort of the last chance here for Republicans. Earlier this year, they thought they were going to be able to put four or five Senate seats in play because the environment looked good and the incumbent senator there, it's her first re-election campaign, not, uh, doesn't have as strong of numbers uh, in that state. But they have a primary on Tuesday between surprise, surprise, a Trumpian type of candidate and a more establishment candidate. Right now, the more Trumpian candidate is ahead. It's going to be very hard for that candidate to survive. This is another place where had uh, 
Trump not been engaged. Yeah. He hasn't endorsed here, but he was really responsible for making it really hard for the most popular Republican in that state, the governor, to say yes to a Senate run. And, 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 and yeah. yeah, so we'll look back, if Democrats do hold on to the Senate, we'll look back to a place- I just lost the program. Say what could have been. I just lost program. Um, and Nia, I wanna come to you. We see, we've seen Biden and Trump fighting it out um, and going to states like Ohio. What's, what are you sort of hearing when you think about sort of how these two presidents are dueling it out when there are so many issues like abortion, like inflation uh, on voters' minds? Well, listen, I mean, you obviously hear Biden trying to make this a choice election rather than a referendum election. He gave that big speech, uh, really pointing the finger uh, at Trump and his more ardent followers as a danger uh, to the country, as a danger to democracy. And you have Trump doing what Trump does, uh, going to different states, Pennsylvania, I'm sure he'll be in Georgia uh, and, and these other states, Ohio, for instance, where he's got a big following, uh, they are attached to his message about 2020 being a fraudulent fraudulent election. Uh, they are attached to his message about him being a target of a witch hunt from the FBI, from the DOJ, and from everyone and their mother. And so that very much resonates uh, with his voters. I think the problem that, that Republicans are seeing, and you can sort of see a kind of firing squad already uh, circulating among these Republicans who I talked to, is that some of these Trumpist candidates uh, might be great for primary voters, but not so great for independent voters, not so great for suburban white women voters, who of course are reacting uh, to a lot of the news uh, we're seeing, particularly around yeah. the Dobbs decision. You see something really happening in the data. Inflation is certainly a huge issue. I think it's the number one issue among uh, among voters. The second most important issue, abortion. The third is healthcare. Well, when you bring up abortion, I, I wanna think of, uh, talk about sort of the, the such importance that it has Dasha, you've been out there talking to candidates, especially Republicans who have had to sort of shift their messaging, I think, in Washington state. Tell us a little bit about what you're hearing on the campaign trail. Well, look, I've had the privilege of being on the ground in several states that were sort of bellwethers that gave us that signal that abortion was really going to become a big driving issues issue for voters. I was on the ground in Kansas in the month leading up to that, that big decision where voters voted down the anti-abortion amendment. And what's really interesting, Amish, when I've been talking to voters, when I was talking to them in, in 2020 and over the last couple of years, there was a lot of focus on politics of personality, right? Is this a candidate that I like? Is this somebody I want to get a beer with? Is this somebody I trust? Is this somebody that's authentic? That's really how Donald Trump, you know, won over a lot of voters. Recently, especially since Dobbs, it's been much more a politics of policy where for the first time in a while, I'm hearing uh, voters really bring up these issues like abortion and like inflation that are actually impacting them, that they feel that direct connection that whoever I elect, who I vote for, is going to impact my life. And it's true, running as a Republican in the post-Dobbs era is a bit of a challenge. I heard that in Washington State when I was there last week. I interviewed Senate candidate uh, Tiffany Smiley, who has made it very clear, she's tried to make it clear that she is pro-life, but she would not vote for a federal abortion ban. You saw Blake Masters, right, NBC News reporting that he scrubbed his website of, uh, of, of anti-abortion language. And when I was reporting on New York's 19th district race, a generic Republican versus a generic Democrat, no offense to them, but it wasn't a, a personality contest. It was really a contest of 
issues, Republicans running on inflation, Democrats running on abortion, the Republican in that race also kind of walked back the message and saying, look, I think the Supreme Court uh, appended what I thought was was law. So you're seeing the shift in messaging and you are seeing voter Dimish very much coming out to the polls based on this issue. So many folks that I've been talking to at polling places, I asked them, what did you vote on? What did you think about when you cast your ballot? And they said, Roe. Um, and Amy, last 30 seconds here, when we think about sort of race and crime in the conversations, what do you say? Actually, I'm being told 10 seconds. Oh. <laughs> How much is, is sort of these other cultural issues playing a factor? Um, it's definitely a factor. And look, you're gonna, we're already starting to see Republicans, they want to change the conversation, talk about crime, talk about inflation, talk about the border. Democrats, you can see ad after ad really focusing in on Roe and abortion and, and that issue. So it's going to be a fight. Well, definitely more to talk about. Thank you so much to our panel for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And don't forget to tune in to the PBS News Weekend on Saturday for anchor Jeff Bennett's interview with Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Marsha Fudge, on the rising cost of housing. And before we go, I want to recognize the death of Queen Elizabeth II at the age of 96. She was the United Kingdom's longest-serving monarch. She met 13 U.S. presidents, including Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, Obama, Trump, and Biden. The late queen ascended to the throne in 1952 and reigned for 70 years. Also on Thursday, journalists and lovers of no-nonsense news lost a groundbreaking giant. Bernard Shaw, best known as CNN's lead anchor for two decades, died at 82. He was one of the first black journalists to anchor a primetime network news program. Condolences to his family and his friends. And thank you for joining us. I'm Yamiche. I'll send Good night from Washington.